Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. My name is Taylor, and with me today will be Tanner. Uh, this is actually part three of our Lusitania series. So if you haven't listened to the first two, I would definitely go back and do that. It is pretty information dense. There's so much stuff, so I would definitely check those out. And with that out of the way, let's check in with Tanner. Tanner, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Are you uh, surviving the snow? Uh, yeah, it's uh, still coming down here. We, we've gotten several inches over the past few days. But yeah, it's good. Nothing like our friends in Duluth. I've, I've seen some pictures from up there and it looks crazy. Yeah, this is a nice, pleasant amount of snow. It's fun for my students, uh, some of whom don't see snow a lot. Nice to get that Wisconsin winter experience. Yeah, it's um actually the perfect amount of snow here right now, which is like a light flurry with nothing accumulating on the roads. So it looks pretty. Uh, the dog loved running through it this morning. So that was fun. But uh, yeah, that's, that's really all we got here. I'm going to move into some media that I've been consuming. Uh, first up is Grand Designs. It's a, it's a British TV show about like building houses and stuff. Hmm. And I can only describe it as aggressively British. I don't know much about Grand Designs. I guess I thought it was more like House Hunters, but they're building houses. They're building houses. Okay. And it's interesting. Um, actually, the Trash Future guys did an episode of Britonology about it recently. And I, I watched it kind of coincidentally to that. It wasn't the reason why I ended up watching it. But um, their takes on it are pretty accurate. There's just some of the, the craziest people you've met trying to build a house that shouldn't be built. So mm, there, It's a cool show because it's kind of like Great British Bake Off in a way that um, they provide real feedback, but not in a mean way necessarily. And they also like sometimes it's good, like sometimes there's really awesome houses and then other times it's kind of a flop. Mm -hmm. So it's um, it's that British brand of reality TV. That's kind of fun. Outside of that, I've been reading a new book titled Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East by David Stahl. Mm -hmm. uh, it's extremely detailed. It assumes that you're coming into the topic with like a decent baseline of knowledge. Uh and I'm not sure that I possess that knowledge. So it's definitely been very tedious to get through this, but um, super interesting. It actually, you know, the Eastern Front is something I think a lot of us as Americans only know in broad strokes. So getting some of the finer details of that and seeing like how quickly Germany is actually in trouble in the Eastern Front is really interesting because I don't think that that's something we get taught necessarily. In broad strokes, we mean literally just watching the movie Enemy at the Gates. Exactly. Like it, I think in the West, a lot of it is like, oh, Stalingrad happened. Mm -hmm. And then there's so much more to that. And just the overall size and like immense scope of what this was, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. It's funny you mentioned that about the book detailed, but also requiring some pre-knowledge. It's kind of how I felt when I read the book Iron Kingdom by mm -hmm. Christopher Clark. It's a history of Prussia. Um, this was a few years ago. And interesting, detailed, but also definitely for someone who already Yes. knows a basic timeline of this stuff because it was kind of organized thematically instead of chronologically so it would kind of jump back and forth you'd it would go forward in time come back mm -hmm. and start talking about some of the same people that you you thought you just heard about yeah that's kind of what this does and like it doesn't spend a lot of time building the characters of like the various generals and officers involved on both sides like it just assumes that you know some of uh, like their biography and everything it's a great book i will be happy when i'm done with it but um it's it's great information what have you been up to? A lot of reading, a lot of writing for this. I uh, also watched two movies, very different in their nature. Uh, Katie <laughs> and I, we watched the new version of All Quiet on the Western Front. 
on Netflix. Okay. Uh, we both really enjoyed that, um, especially the pacing. It was long for a movie that I would watch. I think it was like two and a half hours. Drawn out at times, but pretty harrowing action sequences, reflecting the nature of World War One, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Long streaks of boredom interspersed by terror. It deviates from the book pretty significantly in terms of some of like the noticeable plot points. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a great spiritual depiction of the book. Of- yeah, I think sometimes people get too caught up in that, that the book and the movie are different. But like, I don't want a crappy movie that's faithful to the book if you can make a good movie that, like, like you said, is spiritually accurate. There's specific parts of the book that you're like hoping to see how they do. They might not be in there. Like, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is is one of the opening scenes where they're lined up. They're lined up in front of the cook to get their food. Um, and the cook says, I'm not feeding you until all of you are here. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, this is all that's left. This is all <laughs> of us. And uh, and so, yeah, like the scenes like that aren't really in it. But uh, I thought it was really great. I've never watched the other movie versions of it. I so, haven't either. Uh, someone who has seen those could probably talk to how those things stack up to one another. I thought it was cool to see Daniel Bruhl in the role that he's in. Mm-hmm. Thinking about if this movie was made you know, 15, 20 years ago, Daniel Bruhl is probably playing Paul, the main character, you know, mm-hmm. this, this young kid, whereas now Daniel Bruhl's at a spot in his career where he's playing the older, grizzled type of character. He's not a soldier in it. He's he's more of a politician. But it's just funny to see his career sort of progress to the point where he's playing those characters now instead right. of, you know, the young, fresh-faced kid. The other movie that we watched, Radical Change in themes here it was the movie some like it hot okay i am not one that's seen a lot of classic cinema so i kind of have an inherent and unfounded distaste for old movies i just assume they'll be boring mm-hmm. and i'm sure some of them are but this one makes sense why people talk about this as like one of the greatest movies ever made a lot of humor a lot of very like raunchy dirty humor sort of I guess flying under the radar a little bit. Maybe a viewer wouldn't pick up on it, but there's definitely somewhere like, oh, he just he just made a joke about something that I did not expect people to make jokes about in, in movies from this time. <laughs> uh, Marilyn Monroe is in it. Tony Curtis uh, and Jack Lemmon are like the main characters. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at the level of humor and also the level of violence at times. I mean, there's a part at the beginning that's essentially the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And huh. that's kind of a key plot point in what happens later. A lot of, you know, just the the nature of the humor uh, involving around sex and gender and, you know, a, a major theme in it is is cross-dressing because the two main characters have to pretend to be women for most of the time. Interesting. Even themes like, you know, Marilyn Monroe's character, I guess somewhat eerily, uh, she talks in that movie about addiction and the nature of it and, and how it affects her life and how she gets through it. And so there's a lot of themes in it that I really didn't expect to encounter. I loved it. I thought it was a great movie. Yeah, I don't think you expect that in in older films like that. And I'm like you, I tend to overlook them. But I do think a lot of times the storytelling had to be better because you couldn't Mm -hmm. rely on special effects and things like that. Like you had to have a compelling story with good written dialogue. Very actor driven. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. there's, There's a lot of that in that movie. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's roll into it. Let's do this thing. Let's do Lusitania Part 3. So when we last left the Lusitania, she was just pulling out of New York Harbor, starting her journey to Liverpool. During the early morning of May 7th, the Lusitania would meet a patrol vessel by the name of Partridge around 120 miles southwest of Fastnet Rock at the southern tip of Ireland. 
Partridge is actually a boarding vessel, and she's tasked with patrolling the sector of ocean and basically inspecting vessels as she saw fit. You know, surely if you're a passenger or crew, there's got to be a little sense of relief finally encountering like a British naval vessel, even if it is just a small thing like that. And I don't know if you mentioned this later, but yeah, there's there's points on this where passengers either assume or are directly told by the captain or the crew that we're in British waters. We're under escort now from the Navy. It's very like obvious that like p- passengers and stuff are under the assumption that like they're going to be escorted through the dangerous parts of this. Around 6 a.m. that morning, a heavy fog begins to form around Lusitania's position. And in response to that, Captain Turner does the responsible thing, and he posts extra lookouts. So, you know, if it's me, I'm bring that fog. We want the fog. You know, I can't get sunk by a U-boat. I would be happy with this fog, though. I mean, it kind of gives you cover, right? About two hours later, knowing that he was approaching Ireland, Turner orders depth soundings to be taken, and he reduces the vessel speed to 18 knots before ordering it reduced to 15 knots. Uh, with that, Turner also begins to sound the foghorn. And it's interesting that, you know, sounding the foghorn that early in the morning, you're going to wake up a lot of people on the vessel. This is met with some angry, you know, tired passengers, but also some passengers fear that, why are we broadcasting our position when we know that there's potentially U-boats around and stuff? Why are we doxing ourselves right Yes, now? why are we doxing ourselves? As the morning began to wear on, uh, the fog would begin to break, and by noon, it was a bright, sunny day with excellent visibility and flat seas. Perfect, right? Exactly exactly mm-hmm. what you'd want to have. So everything's going fine with Lusitania. You know, it's been a pretty uneventful journey. So let's shift focus here. Let's talk about what the U-20 and Captain Schwieger have been up to while the Lusitania crossed the Atlantic. He's been pretty busy. He um, <laughs> has a reputation for being one of the more fearsome U-boat commanders, and this is partly why. Not one of the lazy boats? He is not one of the lazy boats. Schwieger is many things, but he is not lazy. <laughs> On May 5th, she stops the schooner Earl of Latham. Uh, Schwieger would order the crew to evacuate and then sink the vessel with U-20's deck gun, which is actually his preferred way and really the German Navy's preferred way of using submarines. Torpedoes still aren't very reliable. And, you know, the deck gun's a sure thing. And you can still do the thing where you let people evacuate. It really is the preferred method. I remember in one of the various readings, seeing that the torpedoes, and I think this was specifically the German torpedoes, had something like a 60% failure rate. Yeah. And they, like, Schwieger has a mix of two different types of torpedo. He has a, mostly they're a, like, older version, but he does have a few of these newer, improved torpedoes that are slightly better. Regardless, the deck gun is the sure thing. It's really what they prefer. It's also interesting to see this return to cruiser rules, as Swigger had regularly attacked vessels without any warning. But, you know, you figure, hey, why not, right? It's just one vessel. And it's a sailing ship, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just a schooner. Swigger's quoted as saying, As no danger existed for our boat in approaching, we made for the stern of the schooner. Uh, 99 tons, many U-boat captains would not have thought this target was even worth attacking. That's how small this vessel is. But despite her small size and her cargo of rocks, the vessel proved difficult to sink. In all, she would take 12 shells from the deck gun in order to pull her under. So just a, a sturdily built gal. At 10.30 p.m. that day, the British would send out an uncoded message to all ships in the area which said submarines active off the south coast of Ireland. 
I feel like that's kind of one of those warnings that would just, it's like, yeah, and like, of course, there's submarines here. Like, we know there's submarines. We kind of knew that already. So this is followed up with uh, a message at midnight that's more specific, and it says submarine off Fastnet. So I guess that's one of the things you hear with the Lusitania is like, oh, they had no idea what they were sailing into. Like, even outside of the, you know, room 40, people still know that there's submarine activity going on. And also interesting here that's that's touched on in a lot of the, the writing about it is the semi-conflicting and overall not very actionable information that they're given. You know, saying exactly. like, like you just said, okay, like, yeah, we know that there's going to be submarines here, but is this one submarine? Is this multiple submarines? Is this current information? Yeah, that's something that you'll see, like, as the story of Lusitania goes on, is they don't even know how many submarines to be looking for. Have they passed the submarine threat? Is it ahead of them? Like, where is it? No one really can pinpoint it. Uh, so the next day, May 6th, U-20 fires a torpedo at the K.O. Romano, although at the time, Schweiger did not know the name of the vessel, and the vessel appeared to be flying Norwegian colors. Uh, what's interesting here is that Schweiger became suspicious of the neutral markings as they seem freshly painted and too high on the vessel. Schweiger actually thought they may just be painted on tarps. So you're seeing some of that cat and mouse game right there kind of play out. So apparently expecting the U-boat to act under cruiser rules, the vessel stopped. And then for about 330 yards away, the U-20 set up to fire one of its improved bronze torpedoes. Seeing the bubbles of the torpedo's wake, the vessel accelerated as quickly as she could and took evasive action. Somehow, Schweiger missed this shot, and he would later state that he believed that the torpedo just missed the stern or passed directly under the stern. He says, After the shot, I turned around hard and ran away in order to avoid danger of being fired upon. For this reason, I did not consider a second attack. So, he's kind of set up in great position, and... They just it shows how unreliable torpedoes can be, right? Like that's why we use the deck gun, basically. And the reason he turns and runs here is because he's assuming that those tarps, if that's what those are, are covering guns. Something like that. Like it could be, yeah, something where it's a setup. You know, we've talked a little bit about some of these merchant cruisers that are literally disguised to look like a merchant vessel and they aren't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he the biggest thing as a U-boat commander is to stay alive, right? Like mm-hmm. you took you you took your chance and then you go. It's kind of like they very much act the way that an ambush predator does, right? They don't want to have a fair fight. That's not what they're meant to do. About an hour after that attempted attack, fog began to roll in, and the captain would take his submarine below the surface. Uh, it's interesting that clearly this incident must have been lingering on Schweiger's mind as he wrote about it in detail in his nightly log. Set up for success, no reason that he should have missed, and he does. That uh, It's lingering with him a little bit. So far on this patrol, all he's sunk is a tiny little schooner, so he's not very happy. Like how sometimes in, in football, you'll see a receiver who's almost too wide open in the end yeah. zone, and yeah. he drops it? Uh, that's the Deontay Johnson effect. How could I have possibly dropped this? Right. <laughs> uh, so later on May 6th, the U-20 would sink another steamer by the name of Candidate. May 6th would actually prove to be a busy day for Schweiger. So he definitely, you know, as bad as the previous day was, he gets a little redemption for himself. He also cites the liner Arabic. However, she proved to be too fast for the U-20 to get into position for a shot. He fully intends on attempting to sink the Arabic, which is another liner. And there's like an alternate universe where this is a four-part series on the Arabic, which is actually a White Star vessel. 
So it is very interesting how if things had been slightly different, that could have been what we focused on. It also takes some of the, not mystery, but it also takes some of the the sensational nature of the Lusitania and puts it in context of this was going to happen to one of these ships. It happened mm-hmm. to be the Lusitania. Exactly. U-20 was given one more chance when the steamer Centurion was sighted. Schwieger would not be deterred, and he promptly sank the vessel. So he has a good day this day. You know, he's sinking multiple vessels. He's sighting a lot of vessels. However, by the morning of the 7th, the U-boat is basically at a point where they have to make a decision. Do they continue on to Liverpool and have a short patrol there? Do they start heading home? They're getting, you know, to the point where they have to make decisions about fuel. They've used a lot of torpedoes. They still have plenty of deck gun ammo. But overall, you know, you're just at that point where, hey, we don't want to put ourselves in a bad position. The vessel, like I said, had begun running low on fuel. They actually only had three torpedoes left. Uh, This, along with the poor visibility and fog, is enough for Captain Schwieger to make the choice to return home. So at this point, the tour is over, right? They're going to start moving to get into position to make the long journey around Ireland, around the British Isles and everything to get back home. And obviously a little disappointed, right? Like I know he had one good day, but he really hasn't sunk anything of note. What this puts in my mind is the whole story around the assassination of Franz Ferdinand with Gavrilo Princip essentially being foiled and, you know, going into what Mm -hmm. a sandwich shop or a coffee shop and thinking about his failure. And then all of a sudden, here he is once again, right? You know, something that was was going to be a failure until the very last minute. Yeah, it is interesting that, you know, like so many things in history, these little odd coincidences that happen. So around 11am, the U-20 sights a small fishing boat, which Schwieger feared was a British patrol vessel. So now, especially making that decision to go home, like he's not in the mood to try to tangle with anybody. He orders U-20 to submerge in an attempt to hide. Only a few minutes later, U-20 is passed over by a fast-moving vessel. It's a large vessel. They know this is not the fishing boat that's passed over them. They can literally hear the propellers and everything. This would turn out to be the HMS Juno, which is actually an Eclipse-class cruiser that was built in 1895. These cruisers are obsolete honestly at this point like they are not modern technology they're really used as like coastal defense that being said you know he still doesn't want to tangle with it necessarily straight up but if he could get into position to sink it he'd love to sink a british warship especially after making the decision to go home this is all bonus stuff that's really interesting you know thinking about this this obsolete ship built in what 1895 in terms of time, it's not a huge distance from from where we are here, but 20, 20 years. Mm-hmm. But seeing how much time that is in military technology and how rapidly these things are changing and developing. Yeah. Especially with naval technology around this time, with all the effort being put into that. But still, how these U-boats are deadly, but also fragile. Exactly. One lucky shot from this, and and that's the end of the story for Walter Schwieger and his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Juno had been warned of submarine activity in the area and was moving quickly in a zigzag pattern. Uh, this encounter proved to be too much for the normally calm captain, and he kind of loses it for a minute. He unleashes a torrent of profanity. He's throwing stuff around. He's just generally disappointed with not even being able to get a shot off. And he's just had so many close calls with large, you know, liners and stuff like that. He's just, he has that moment of frustration. U-20 would come to the surface around 1245. 
By that point, the weather had cleared and had turned into a bright, sunny day. A perfect day for spotting enemy vessels, although Schwieger knew he had to begin his journey home. Soon, something new on the horizon caught the U-boat captain's eye. At first, Schwieger thought they had sighted multiple ships due to the number of funnels that could be seen. He would describe the vessel on the horizon as a forest of masts and funnels. As the picture became more clear, the captain and crew realized that this was in fact one vessel, an extremely large one. At one twenty, Schwieger wrote, Ahead and a starboard, four funnels and two masts of a steamer with course triangular to us comes into sight. The log would continue, made out to be a passenger steamer. So it's clear that he knows this is a passenger liner. He knows that before they ever get close to it. These U-boats have a guy who's basically the specialist. Yes on identifying these things by silhouette and other features of them. He's got his book, his little reference guide of, of what this could be. Schwieger doesn't even need that. Yeah, he's aware that this is, he knows what this is. He may not know it's the Lusitania, but he knows it mm-hmm. can only be like four or five different ships. At 125, U-20 would submerge to periscope depth, and the sub moved at her maximum submerged speed of nine knots in order to get into position for attack. However... To Schweiger's, oh, I keep wanting to say Schweiger. That's because I think the spelling changes in some of them, which is good because it shows you understand German spelling pronunciation rules. <laughs> also, Schweiger, I feel like is a more common name. Schweiger is more common. That's why I thought it was a typo the first time I saw it in the book. <laughs> and I realized that, oh, it actually is Schweiger. Uh, to Schweiger's disappointment, when U-20 was about two miles away, the large vessel changed her course and began to move away from Schweiger. Clearly, he's already frustrated, right? Like, this is just how his day has been going. So he would write, I had no hope now. Even if we hurried at our best speed, we had no hope of getting near enough to attack her. Then, in one of those weird moments that happens so frequently in major historical events, the vessel seemingly altered her course for no reason, directly into U-20's path of attack. Hmm. It's so funny how that stuff happens. It's like you said, to, not to go, you know, go use this metaphor too much, but to go back to Gabriel Princey, like mm-hmm. it just falls into his lap. And it's the same thing right here. You probably can't believe it. You're like, what's he doing? Why? Why is he doing this? I think it's funny how we, you know, we said this guy who's normally so calm and put together. He has this moment where he's just freaking out in frustration before this happens. And you've just got to think like, what, what little shred of control did he keep there where Okay, now it turns away. What if he does that again? What if he goes into another one of these raids? He doesn't take another look through the periscope and he just orders them to, you know, get going. But whatever that extra little ounce of control he was able to exert leads to this. Mm -hmm. And now with a target around 700 meters away, Schwieger orders a single torpedo to be fired. Uh, Schwieger would write in the U-20's log, Torpedo hits starboard side right behind the bridge. An unusually heavy detonation takes place with very strong explosive cloud. The explosion of the torpedo must have been followed by a second one. The ship stops immediately and heels over to starboard very quickly, immersing simultaneously at the bow. The name Lusitania becomes visible in gold letters. I think that's interesting, and I think we'll probably deal with some of this. There's a lot of different accounts of if there's one torpedo, some people say there's two. There's disputes about where the torpedo impacts. Honestly, the person I trust the most is Schwieger (laughs) because he does this for a living. This is not new for him. 
And also, he's not really under stress at this point. He's happy. He's done the thing he's supposed to do. I think we all know, like, eyewitness accounts are awful, usually. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not accurate. So I would trust Schwieger over someone on board the vessel not expecting that to happen. Also, he's got to keep torpedoes in reserve for the the way home. So he's certainly not going to put two into a ship if he doesn't think he needs to. Yeah, yeah. I definitely do not buy the second torpedo hypothesis. Also, this kind of highlighted for me how good surprisingly good for me the optics on these things were if if he can read the name of this through his periscope i didn't realize that these would have anything close to that level of clarity in them yeah apparently they're pretty good raymond weisbach the submarine's torpedo officer watched the scene through the submarine's periscope he also notes how powerful the explosion was so you know they're surprised by this they're surprised by how much secondaries you know, mm-hmm. or how many secondary, you know, type things there are going on here. And in the log, also how Schwieger even notes, like he, he doesn't quite know why he says boiler or coal or powder. He's kind of just guessing as to what that second explosion might have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I look at it too is like Schwieger has no reason to lie. Yeah. You why? know what I mean? There, there's why? just no, there's no incentive for him to not tell the truth in his logs. Even though it is a passenger liner, it's is firing only one really that much better than firing two at this thing? Like, right. it, there's there's no incentive there. So. Right. Let's shift focus to the Lusitania. An 18-year-old lookout by the name of Leslie Morton is the first to sight the bubbling wake of an inbound torpedo. Uh, he uses a megaphone and he shouts, Torpedoes coming on the starboard side. At the time, Morton thought he saw two torpedoes inbound. And that's probably where we get the beginnings of like the two torpedo hypothesis. But if there's a torpedo coming at the ship that I'm on and I'm watching it, who knows what I'm going to see? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Upon impact, a large plume of water is tossed into the air. And amongst that water is all sorts of debris. You know, you're talking steel plating from the hull, deck chairs. I mean, anything or right? anything that's on that vessel becomes a projectile at that point. Lots of shards of wood and glass. Not somewhere that you really want to be. This is followed by a secondary explosion, which is even more powerful. And this time, the explosion sends coal and coal dust flying into the air. At 2.12, Captain Turner orders the vessel to take a course hard a starboard and to make for the Irish coast. At the wheel is Quartermaster Johnson, and he's attempting to do this maneuver, but the vessel cannot be stabilized on the appropriate course, and she soon stops responding to any inputs whatsoever from the wheel. Captain Turner then orders the engines to be reversed in order to stop the vessel. Uh, This would prove to be impossible, however, as steam pressure had fallen to an extremely low level after the initial torpedo strike. So what you're seeing here is just a complete kind of severance of any normal functioning on board the vessel at this point. You know, systems aren't working the way they're supposed to. Um, steering is not working the way it's supposed to. It's evident extremely quickly. That this is a fatal blow to the ship, to the crew. It's so hard when we're going through all this information to paint a good picture of what's going on. And I think the way I've chosen to do it here is just through the eyes of Robert Leith, who is the wireless operator that day. So I'm going to kind of run through his description of those events. And he's probably more in tune with what's going on than anyone is on that vessel since he's having to broadcast the messages. If nothing else, he has the advantage of he spends this time primarily in one spot. Right. He's stationary. He's he's sending out these signals. And while other people are seeing different things, they're running around. He is one of the only people who's staying stationary through most of this. 
So Robert Leith, um, his account of the events will be published in the Sunday Chronicle on May 5th, 1935. And we'll be quoting pretty extensively from him. He is, again, he is the wireless operator, the, the main wireless operator for Lusitania. He had actually just gotten off of his shift that day. So, you know, he's not really thinking about work. He's just about getting something to eat. On the morning of Friday, May 7th at 2, he says a.m. in the interview. That's actually 2 p.m. I came off watch at 2.15 a.m. I sat down to lunch. The soup was placed in front of me by a steward. And a woman remarked, you're very late, Mr. Lath. You know, you have assigned seating, so you end up eating with the same people. So they just kind of know. They've learned his shift, basically. (laughs) Suddenly, my soup plate went jumping and my ears filled with the thunder of the explosion. My mind retains a flash of a few faces around me, blank astonishment rather than fear, and no sense of anything catastrophic. Leith got up from his lunch and ran to the stairs leading to the wireless room. As he ran through the passageways, he saw men and women with looks of shock on their face. Leith would say in the immediate aftermath of the torpedo strike, The story of the next 20 minutes has never been and never will be told in full. There were men who screamed as they died of their burns in the stokehold and gallant gentlemen who gave way their life belts. There was A.G. Vanderbilt standing with his feet wide apart at the entrance of the saloon with a cigarette between his lips and a mildly interested expression on his face. It's a pretty cool picture. A.G. Vanderbilt is one of the more interesting. I think you'll you'll talk about him a little bit more. Mm -hmm. He kind of embodies the the like chivalry kind of component that's still expected of, you know, a upstanding gentleman at the time. I think it's very interesting. You see pictures of Alfred Vanderbilt and you kind of realize like, okay, he's he's the person that everyone wants to be mm-hmm. at the time. You know, yeah. he's this young guy. He's a good looking guy. Obviously he's well dressed because of his status. He's the guy that everyone wants to be. I think it's interesting, yeah, just to see that, you know, he's cool and calm. I think that's mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. Also of note, that is Anderson Cooper's great uncle i think Mm. i I did some clicking on wikipedia (laughs) i knew he was a vanderbilt i couldn't have told you what level or depth yeah pretty close really uh so after finally making his way to the wireless room lath is able to send the following messages come at once big list 10 miles south of old head kinsale lath then repeated that message and added lusitania's letters m s u which those letters are kind of important because it's somewhat how like people know this isn't a setup. Leith watched as the ship's power began to fail. And in a quick response to that, he turns on the emergency battery power and gets the wireless radio working again. So pretty quick thinking. Obviously, like we were saying, all the systems on the ship are failing, but he's able to get the emergency local battery backup powered on. And, uh, you know, he's able to continue to do his job. At 2.14, he types out another message which said, Come at once, big list, 10 miles south, Old Head Kinsale. As it became evident that the list was worsening, the messages from Leith got more desperate. Send help quickly. Am listing badly. So you can see, like, they're brief. It's sort of like old school texting, almost. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can hear the desperation in that. That It's getting more intense. It's like, you, we need help now. Something I was curious about, and I haven't seen anything written. This is purely conjecture based on some of the the stuff that I've read about this. There were standing orders, I know, from the Admiralty. Large vessels were instructed not to go to the aid of ships who'd been torpedoed, Mm -hmm. specifically because they had 
recently had this, I think it was three ships being torpedoed by the same submarine, basically Mm -hmm. in succession, because as the one sinks, the others come to help. And there's a perfect target for this Mm U-boat. I noticed in all of that, at no point in any of those messages does does Leith say that they've been torpedoed or. Yeah, it is interesting. And so, I mean, it, maybe it wasn't confirmed. Obviously, some some sort of hostile act had happened to the ship. But I think it's interesting. He doesn't mention that. And maybe that just wasn't standard practice. But was this an attempt to get ships to come to their aid? Because maybe they would not have if they had if they had mentioned why. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think also. You have to remember, it all takes place, like, what, in 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. I don't even know that he's ever ordered to do these things. You know, he may not even know what the problem is. He maybe he right. thinks it's a boiler explosion. All he knows is, like, this is this is going poorly. I think everyone has to know, though. Like, if he, like you know, even if you don't know, right? And that's the other thing is thinking, yeah, he, he very well might not want to say it's a torpedo if he doesn't know that. Um, and at the same time, ultimately... If he's asking for aid, it doesn't really matter why the ship's sinking. Right. He he wants to get help. Also, with the climate going on, like I think most people would assume it's a submarine. That wouldn't have been a surprise to people. There'd been, you know, people talking about it and even joking about it. I just found that interesting, but I but I also never saw anyone comment on that. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, it would be kind of reckless on his part if he was intentionally leaving that out and possibly putting other ships in danger. I guess if you're on the sinking ship, you're like, well, you, you yeah, <laughs> you coming to save me means more than you being safe. <laughs> Again, I'll highlight that is all just what conjecture. I was thinking about. That is conjecture and and not verified anywhere. Leith would go on to share a somewhat humorous story when being interviewed in 1935. He says, a passenger looked in through the door with a cheery smile. And at the same moment, a member of the crew ran across our vision shouting, the watertight doors are all right. They're all right. Don't worry. All three of us laughed. The ship had such a list that a child could have seen that she was due for the final plunge within minutes. So it's funny. You still have someone (laughs) running around saying, it's all fine. It's all fine. And, you know, everyone knows, like, it's not fine. This is no, nope, not great. In this situation here, is this intended to be? I, I mean, we don't I don't know if we know. Is this a genuine feeling of this or is this someone making a joke like as the ship is like halfway underwater? Like, hey, but the watertight doors are fine. I think it's just them trying to keep people calm and probably not stampede. Right. Is my guess is, <laughs> you know, he's probably some sort of an officer or something. And he's just trying to keep everyone organized because it does seem that it's very apparent, very quick that this is not going to end well. Both Leith and his assistant McCormick would continue to send messages until water reached the boat deck and the bow was almost submerged. At that point, McCormick pulled out a small Kodak camera and took a single photograph of the scene. After taking the photo, he remarks, what a snap this will make. (laughs) Sadly, this film would be destroyed in the water, but I can't. Can you can you imagine? Can you imagine having that photograph? Do it for the gram. I think it's interesting. This is one of the first times, too, where you're seeing the access to photography take photos in real time. You know, we think of that as a smartphone development. We do. As long as people have been able to take quick photos, people have wanted to take photos at times when they probably shouldn't. Yeah. Can you imagine like what TikTok would be today if this happened? Like, yeah. be, like going live from the deck of the Lusitania? Yeah. Um, and I think that's in a way it's kind of heartening about human nature, about, you know, he, there's funny things that humans do regardless of, of the time period. If the technology is there to do it. All right. Do it. <laughs> Uh, Leith would go on to continue to describe his ordeal. 
My grin was probably a little sickly as I said goodbye to McCormick, who had decided to go down with the ship in hope of finding a piece of wreckage on which to float away. The rail of the upper deck was almost level with the sea. The sun was still shining, and the glassy water was dotted with hundreds of white faces, waterlogged boats, and the bobbing heads of men who were still swimming. Near at hand, smash boats dangled from davits like toys, while on the other side of the vessel, I could see men and women climbing out to walk into the sea on the iron plates of the ship's side. It's a pretty, like, tremendous scene that he's describing. (laughs) I don't even know what to call that a magnitude. It's just a huge mm-hmm. thing that's happening. Leith would go on to say, I found a tiny waterlogged boat still attached at the davits now level with the sea in which there was only one other man. He was hacking at the falls with the pin knife to cut her clear. I jumped in. So Leith is able to get the boat clear of Lusitania, but now faces a new problem, which is the Lusitania herself. It's always interesting when you see the thing that is safety become the thing that is danger. This is a a precursor to lifeboat stuff we'll talk about in a few minutes of how even the lifeboats that are, you know, quote unquote, successfully launched, they're not done in the way that you would normally want them to be launched. They're already level with the water. They're not being lowered because they're already there. They're being cut free with a pen knife away. (laughs) Um, It's yeah. Even even the few that did launch were very close to not launching. We got clear, but a new danger threatened us. The great funnels were dropping down on us. Down they came, lower and lower, until I could reach one of them and shove us clear. Then the main funnel bobstay threatened to cut us through in half. We slipped under it. The funnel tops reached the water, and the sea gushed into their black chasms. A woman was swept in front of us on the current and into the funnel, only to be belched out again. She was picked up, revived, and lived to tell the tale. Aleth's boat was eventually able to make it away from the immediate vicinity. However, as you said, lifeboats aren't perfect, and it begins to sink. Uh, Fortunately, they were able to transfer to a different lifeboat, and they're eventually picked up by a fishing vessel. In Queenstown, uh, Leith would be reunited with McCormick, who had decided to go down with the ship. McCormick told of being sucked down into a vortex caused by the ship, but ultimately he bobbed to the surface and was picked up by a boat. Leith closed his account with the following. Wearing a borrowed coat and a Macintosh, it was my business to wander around the mortuaries identifying the pathetic faces, while a mile or two out to sea, the gull swooped and circled in noisy requiem, the grave of the wondership that had been my boyhood pride and ambition. I thought that was a pretty fitting way to end his account. So yeah, that is the wireless man's account of the sinking. And I think that is a pretty good baseline story, like you said, because he's in one place and it's not as confusing. But uh, I think you have a lot of lot more stories for us. Yeah, a few. And again, like, um, there's so much written about Lusitania. There's kind of a a handful of passengers who are written about quite a lot in every book, every publication about Lusitania. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's just the most written about them. That's uh, most of these accounts cover them. Um, in some cases, they were able to write their own account afterwards. So we have some of those here, really just focusing on some, I think, that that grabbed our attention uh, most personally. There's tons of these. There's multiple great books on this. Of course, there's Dead Wake by Eric Larson. Also, that Daniel Allen Butler book I've been quoting a lot. 
Diana Preston. Uh, she has Lusitania, an epic tragedy, and she has a more recent one. Uh, it's called, I think, Willful Murder. Um, so there's tons of books on this, um, and they, they all cover those passenger stories in depth. So the accepted time between the initial torpedo strike and the complete sinking of the Lusitania is about 18 minutes. How a liner of just this massive size could have sunk so quickly has never been 100% established. But there is that theory that she was carrying some form of contraband high explosives. Mm -hmm. That's been more or less debunked by the people who write about it. Basically, just if this was, you know, gun cotton or some other high explosive material, that second explosion wasn't nearly big enough. Right. There would have been nothing left. Like this, this would have been just an enormous explosion. This would have been like a powder magazine exploding. That's probably not what happened. But regardless, um, in those 18 minutes, some of the most harrowing moments that hundreds of people would ever experience played out. Mm -hmm. And for a majority of those on board, these were their last moments. There's way too many passenger and crew stories worth telling for us to cover just on this podcast um, in the, the few hours that we have. So check out those books for sure. We'll obviously have those in the references in the show notes. Uh, so one that you've already talked about is Alfred Gwynn Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. He's one of the most frequently discussed passengers on board, just like with Astor on the Titanic. He, this is kind of the role that Vanderbilt plays here. I think anytime you get one of those like American royalty type names, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically what you're dealing with. Yeah. Someone that, you know, people would have known, people would have recognized, people would have been very excited. Like, oh, I was, I was on a ship with this person. I saw him mm -hmm. at dinner. He was the head of the, the Vanderbilt family at the time, heir to the most significant chunk of the fortune left by his father, Cornelius Vanderbilt II. So that made Alfred the great-grandson of the Commodore, Cornelius Vanderbilt, someone that we have talked about on a few occasions, uh, mm -hmm. just because of his connection with the shipping industry. And Alfred actually somewhat lucked into his inheritance. I mean, like, even more so than just being a Vanderbilt. You, you know, life's good when you're a lucky Vanderbilt. Yeah. Well, lucky for a little bit, at least. He was actually the third oldest son. His oldest brother had died very young uh, in 1892. The next brother had actually been disinherited, I believe, for being engaged to someone that the father didn't approve of. This is straight up like being in the royal family. This is like succession here. They got um, they, he got Meghan Markled. And I, I think it was purely a status thing. I, I think she probably wasn't from a rich family or rich uh -huh. enough. Um, and the father didn't approve of, of that. Rich enough. <laughs> rich enough for the Vanderbilts. Imagine they're like being worried about that as a Vanderbilt. <laughs> like, well, where's the money going to come from? Yeah. Who's going to pay for their wedding? <laughs> uh, so, of course, that left Alfred next in line. Um, so when their father died, he was the primary uh, inheritor. Vanderbilt traveled on Lusitania in the style that one would probably expect of a Vanderbilt. He'd booked two parlor suites uh, with his valet in a separate room. Noted not in one of the suites. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it was noted in one of the books that the valet was in an interior room, so with no porthole or anything. I would imagine that's still decent. Like, I mean, oh, you're yeah, still I'm in sure. first class. I'm right? sure like, it's still nothing to complain about. I would think being his assistant would be better than like staying in third class for sure. Yeah. Even second, probably. Uh, so for those accommodations, Vanderbilt had paid the equivalent of more than $22,000 in today's money. So during the sinking, like you said, Vanderbilt was noted for his calm demeanor. And also his willingness to aid other passengers. He gave away his own life belt to someone. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. 
when you see someone like him, like, I think there is still, it's cool to see that like chivalrous streak still kind of being something that like is expected of him. Like, I think there has to be on someone, well, I'm a Vanderbilt. This is what we do. You know what I mean? Like we should be the example. And I'm sure there's that internal pressure. There's also the external pressure of how do people expect me to act in this position? How will people tell my story, whether I survive or not? You know, if I, Mm -hmm. if I end up surviving this, of course, you know, I, this is how I have to behave. So people will still respect me. Right. Because if he survives and everyone says, well, he's a coward, like mm-hmm. that's it, right? Even doesn't yeah. matter how much money you have. Especially in the aftermath of the Titanic, where so many yeah. of the male survivors were painted as cowardly purely for the act that they were still alive. And I think you probably have to factor that in a little bit, right? That that's still really fresh. And like, that's not to denigrate his heroism because, you know, no. he didn't ha- he didn't have to do all the stuff that he did. I'm still- sure he could have talked his way onto a lifeboat if he had wanted to. For saying, sure. I'm a Vanderbilt. I'm getting in. <laughs> yeah. So he was last seen at the railing as the ship went under. Uh, his body was never recovered. Um, although the family did put out a $5,000 reward for the, the finding of the body. That never happened. We're kind of going to go through all of these pretty quickly. Uh, next up, who interested me was Charles Froman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was a theater producer, and he's credited with doing a lot to raise the profile of American stage productions to be on par with London, you know, the place where everyone wanted to be, everyone wanted to go. Uh, if you were anyone in the industry, that's where you went. He did a lot to address that imbalance of people starting to respect American theater. Interesting. He he established kind of a system where theaters on both sides of the Atlantic would kind of share actors share talent which again was a new thing you know it used to be Mm. that everyone's trying to go to london i have to make it in london and this is the first time or probably not the first time but this is the the first widespread time where you have british actors coming to the u.s to be in productions which would have been unheard of before you know uh, not that long before Mm -hmm. Um, he'd produced more than 500 plays uh, including the first u.s version of peter pan huh interesting he was at the peak of his career when he boarded Lusitania, and he was actually accompanied by actress Rita Jolivet. I think it's Jolivet. So quoting here from Diana Preston's Lusitania, an epic tragedy, uh, she describes the moments after the torpedo struck. Charles Froman seemed curiously unconcerned by the drama. He'd been on deck talking to Rita Jolivet's brother-in-law, George Vernon, and the English captain Alex Scott when Schwieger attacked. Froman continued smoking a cigar but Scott insisted on going below decks in search of life jackets. He returned with two and began to put one of them on Froman, who accepted only with great reluctance and soon gave it away to a woman. He kept on smoking and remarked conversationally, I didn't think they would do it. I think that's interesting that Froman is almost kind of reacting the same way that Vanderbilt does, which like, uh, do they almost not expect to survive at this point? I mean, he, he clearly doesn't want the life jacket. Does he not even want to be seen with a life jacket? You know what I mean? The, the quickness with which he gives us away. Again, you, you have to think that, that that prevailing feeling of, I'm not allowed to survive this if it's something I'm doing of my own volition. Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting just from a rhetorical standpoint, the way that Preston words that, saying that he was on deck when Schwieger attacked. Mm-hmm. Not Very personal. Yeah, saying not, this is not the machine did not do this. The torpedo did not sink the Lusitania. A person made the decision to do this, which is in line with the title of her later book. Absolutely. So Froman and his companions would remain on deck of the ship uh, as she sank. 
wanting to avoid the chaos of the lifeboats. You know, we know that that doesn't go well, and a lot of people intentionally stay away from them. Froman reportedly quoted a line from Peter Pan just as they entered the water. He said, Why fear death? It is the most beautiful adventure that life gives us. A theater kid till the end. Gotta live the life. Right. Froman's body was, unlike many, uh, actually recovered and identified, uh, which mm. allowed him to be returned to the U.S. for burial. Mm-hmm. Preston also notes that admission to his funeral was by ticket only. Hmm. Um, so, uh, again, a big deal. This is at a time when you know a theater producer would have been a widely recognized person, probably more so to a wider part of the populace than today. This was an event that people you know wanted to go to. What if Lin Manuel Miranda? That you have to kind of think about it like that, right? Like that, it, it's that level of of celebrity. It's that's the kind of person we're talking about here. When you put it in that context, like thinking about like how big of a news story that would be today. I've heard that described with like um, the Lincoln assassination. How like mm-hmm. John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, and that's what we know him for now. He was a pretty famous actor at the time. Someone described it as like I forget the actor that they chose, but it's like. What if Rob Lowe killed the president? In this case, just talking about the Vanderbilt, what if Peter Thiel and Lynn Manuel Miranda are on the same airplane that right. crashes? Like, that's what this is the equivalent of. Like, that's right. pretty insane to think about. Another pair of passengers here that was of interest to me was Albert Hubbard and his wife Alice. So, Albert Hubbard was a well known writer, publisher, and all around philosopher. He was the founder of the Roycroft community in East Aurora, New York, which was established in 1895. This was a community of artists and crafts workers that specialized in things like printing and like really fancy uh, handmade book binding, hmm. uh, weaving, pottery, leatherwork, glass work, bead work, all of those sort of hands-on uh, mm-hmm. types of crafts. I kind of couldn't help but think about the Battle of Shroot Farms <laughs> from the office <laughs> uh, when I was reading about this. It, it makes me think of like the Chautauqua Institute and all that in New York. I think there was a pretty big like arts and crafts and like artisan movement in upstate New York. And I've been to Chautauqua before and it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's also where Sham- Salman Rushdie got attacked at. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were as many as 500 residents of Roycroft in 1910. You were just talking about the arts and crafts movement. And it's cool because it can be seen as a reaction to this ever-increasing industrialization that's happening in in pretty much every facet of society, but particularly in production of goods. And so this movement kind of came out of that saying, well, we can make things by hand. We can make beautiful things by hand that machines can't make. Mm -hmm. And contrast this with other more violent responses we've talked about to industrialization. We talked about the swing riots in our Prison Hulks episodes, this reaction, this backlash against industrialization by breaking all these machines you see it kind of as a philosophical aesthetic opposition versus you know someone who's fighting for their livelihood mm-hmm. um it's also worth contrasting this movement with the later precisionist movement which I, I think is an interesting artistic movement but this was a movement that really praised and basically worshipped industry and and machines and saying look at all the things that humans can do now mm-hmm emphasizing that you know mechanical efficiency and if you look at precisionist art humans are basically non-existent you know you see big ships and skyscrapers and uh, tractors and things and you see very few humans in those it's kind of an opposite way of looking at these things i think you know not to go too far into it but not seeing humans and like the impersonality of it 
is sort of a metaphor for submarine warfare in itself, right? Kind of giving agency to these machines rather than the people in them. Which I think calls back to what we were just saying about that quote, that they don't say U-20, they say mm-hmm. Schwieger. Kind of reminding us that behind the machine, there always is a person. You could draw that out to today, you know, the prevalence of drone warfare, whether it's mm-hmm. actual warfare on a battlefield or the way that the United States tends to use them of hitting softer targets, mm-hmm. um, like weddings uh, sometimes. Uh, but yeah, the idea that someone's behind the drone, the drone mm-hmm. didn't decide to do this on its own. Right. We're not quite to that point yet. So among Hubbard's most famous writings was the essay, A Message to Garcia. It was published in 1899. It's very short. It's only a few pages long. The essay was based on events, very loosely based, uh, from American military operations in Cuba. It's an interesting little essay, especially with the knowledge that this person ever considered himself a socialist. Now, he would distance himself from socialism uh, at one point. But you definitely wouldn't get that vibe from reading the essay. (laughs) It's very much an essay about workers should be grateful for the jobs they have. You shouldn't complain about their bosses. You should be thankful to your bosses. You should do all of the stuff your boss asks you because you're lucky to be in the position to be asked in the first place. I think that's actually the Twitter employee handbook currently. (laughs) Um, So it's very interesting. He's an interesting person politically and philosophically, you know, identifying with these socialist and anarchist movements, also being very pro-capitalist and very anti-union. So he's an interesting guy. More directly relevant to the main uh, event we're discussing here, he'd recently written an article in his journal, The Philistine, called Who Lifted the Lid Off of Hell? (laughs) So the article was critical of Kaiser Wilhelm and German militarism. He uses the term Kruppism in the the article, obviously referring to the Krupp arms manufacturing, mm-hmm. he lays the blame for the European war solely at the feet of Germany. Uh, so from page nine of that, he says, Bill Kaiser has a withered hand and a running ear. Also, he has a shrunken soul and a mind that reeks with egomania. He's a mastoid degenerate of a noble grandmother. In degree, he has her power, but not her love. He has her persistence, but not her prescience. He is swollen like a drowned pup with a pride that stinks. He never wrote a letter or message wherein he did not speak of God as if the creator was waiting to see him in the lobby. (laughs) Wow. I think in episode one, we talked about how there's lots of ways to describe Kaiser Wilhelm and very few of them are good. And here's a great example. Feels pretty accurate. (laughs) Also, I will say I had to look up the word mastoid to make sure it wasn't like a racial slur. <laughs> and it's not. I believe it's just him having a jab at like him being an inbred royal, referring to okay. his jaw. Oh, that's um, perfectly okay. But I did check. So because um, <laughs> it doesn't sound good. No, it, it's definitely one of those words that you know is bad. But I'm going to use it now. So like any good promoter, he was, of course, ready with copies of this essay to hand out to his fellow passengers. <laughs> Very funny to be like, oh, yeah, I wrote this. Here you go. He sounds like he would be really annoying, actually, to be around. <laughs> he kind of does. He kind of does. So the Hubbards were socializing on deck when the torpedo struck. Larson describes the following scene in Dead Wake. Charles Laureate was standing next to Albert Hubbard and his wife. He urged them to go to their room and get their life jackets. But the couple seemed paralyzed. Mr. Hubbard stayed by the rail, affectionately holding his arm around his wife's waist, and both seemed unable to act. Laureate told Hubbard, 
if you don't care to come, stay here and I'll get them for you. Laureate set off to his own quarters. I think that was a part that was really interesting in Dead Wake was seeing all the different reactions from passengers, the fight or flight kind of reactions. And you have someone like Laureate who's like, no, no, I'm getting off this boat. <laughs> yeah, I got stuff to do. But not in the sense of like being detrimental to anyone else. He's like, uh-huh. no, I'm just I'm going to survive. I'm going to help as many people around me survive. Yeah, I think Laureate highlights the the ridiculousness of this sentiment of, oh, well, you know, I'm we're upper crust people where we're we're not allowed to scramble for the lifeboats. Um, <laughs> right. And I think Laureate, there's that balance of, yeah, like do this in like a measured, controlled way, help people who you can. But like also look out for number one, you want to survive this. I said, I read through Dead Week twice for this, and I feel like Laureate gets highlighted a lot in that book. And I feel like it's probably the one of the characters you most connect with mm-hmm. in reading that book is, is Laureate, which I know we'll discuss here in a minute. Um, so Elbert and Alice would both be lost in the sinking. Um, their bodies were never recovered. Uh, there's a really clear connection, though, to be made here with Hubbard's writing from just three years before um, in the wake of the Titanic disaster. So on Titanic, businessman Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida um, had been had been on that uh, that maiden voyage of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And in accordance with women and children first, Ida would have been granted a spot on a lifeboat. She was offered a spot on a lifeboat. She elected to stay behind with her husband because she didn't want to leave him. Stephen Beale's book, Down with the Old Canoe, um, a cultural history of the Titanic, talks a lot about the themes and the discussions that happened after the Titanic, specifically the role of women in the sinking and in society as a whole Mm -hmm. didn't lead to people saying wonderful things about women's suffrage and independence. Mm -hmm. And so this couple was kind of put forward as, you know, this is what a couple should be. This is what a man and wife should be. And Hubbard is one of the people who was partially responsible for that. Uh, He wrote, Mr. and Mrs. Strauss, I envy you that legacy of love and loyalty left to your children and grandchildren. The calm courage that was yours all your long and useful career was your possession in death. You knew how to do three great things. You knew how to live, how to love, and how to die. One thing is sure, there are just two respectable ways to die. One is of old age, and the other is by accident. All disease is indecent. Suicide is atrocious. But to pass out as did Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Strauss is glorious. Few have such a privilege. Happy lovers, both. In life, they were never separated. And in death, they were not divided. I have some thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, Nicholas Sparks got better as he went go- went <laughs> on there. Second, like you know what, know what your children and grandchildren would like even more than a great legacy? Their mom and grandmother. I mean, I don't know if I'm in that situation. I'm like, no, you need to get on the boat because they still need you. Like, if I can't get on, you need to get on. I get the idea like the romanticism behind, you know, us both passing together and going into this. But like, no, how about just the kids need you or the grandkids need you? I I can definitely sympathize with the idea of a couple wanting to to be together in in this Mm -hmm. moment that that I think makes total sense. Um the afterward the the laudatory nature of that mm-hmm. is a it gets into some very weird territory it almost echoes like the victorian stuff a little bit of the the fascination with death where it gets to be almost like well this is what a wife is supposed to do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know a, a wife is supposed to die with her husband and like you just said i i think it would probably be better if she didn't or if right. both of them didn't right yeah 
So yeah, he he had written on themes like this before. Probably didn't know that he and Alice would be put in the same situation a few years later. <laughs> yeah, he's probably, uh, this was a lot easier when I was writing it. Possibly. I mean, and we talked about societal pressure and yeah, you know, he's he's made his thoughts clear on this and, you know, now he's he's got a chance to do it. So Charles Laureate, who we have mentioned a little bit, uh, he was a Boston bookseller with a special interest in rare books. Uh, he was traveling to England on a buying trip, but he also had two interesting items of note. He had two scrapbooks of sketches by William Makepeace Thackeray that Thackeray had made to illustrate his own writing. So these were handmade by Thackeray. Laureate planned to have the sketches bound into a, a presentable and probably very expensive uh, final product. Because these these are just like loose drawings in a scrapbook. But he figured if he could doll these up a little bit, people would pay fabulous amounts of money for this. Is this the one he actually owns or is this the piece he's borrowing? This is the one that he is he owns and he's going to resell. Okay. The thing that he's borrowing that you're referring to is a copy of A Christmas Carol with personal annotations from Charles Dickens himself. Hmm. This one had belonged to Dickens. These annotations had been made as part of legal action brought by the author against um, literary pirates. Mm -hmm. Tale as old as time. Artists don't want their work pirated. Right. It had actually been sold by Laureate to a client already, but he was borrowing it at the request of a solicitor in London who wanted to make copies of the notes. So he sells this book and then he has to go back to the guy and is like, hey, (laughs) Can I borrow this? I promise nothing will happen to it. Exactly. Laureate noted that the the owner agreed rather unwillingly to do this, but Laureate's guarantee of its safety convinced him. So. (laughs) (laughs) How long does one wait to ask about like payment? This is the botanical samples (laughs) for the Lusitania here. But seriously, how long do you wait for like, so uh, that was expensive. Uh, Let's talk money. Glad you're safe, by the way. I do actually have a note here about the money, so mm. <laughs> I, I don't know how much of it goes to this guy, though. <laughs> that is an interesting... Uh, how, how long do you wait? That's like a... It's almost a Seinfeld plot. Oh, right. So Laureate's father, who'd founded the business, um, he'd make pretty frequent trips to and from England, buying old books that had higher demand back in the US, reframing the, you know, this is back in the day where you can't just easily look for something and, and, and buy it and have it sent to you. At least the average person can't. So while he was invested in the rare book trade, uh, he was also a pioneer in realizing the profitability of selling remaindered books at a reduced price, uh, something that we are very familiar with um, in the modern day. What is a remaindered book? Uh, so a remaindered book is like, uh, so when a, a new book is published, they obviously print thousands and thousands, or today they print thousands of these things. Um just to make sure that there's enough to satisfy demand. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much always intentionally over print these things so that after a book's initial surge of popularity, that's why when you go to say a Barnes and Noble, you'll see bargain stacks of the same book for like five bucks. So that's why there's like 30 copies of like some new Tom Clancy book that somehow got written. Exactly. Um, Because they're just making sure they can cover the initial surge. And then they they basically know there's going to be a ton left over. Nice. Now it's common practice for those extra books. People buy those in bulk, resell them for, you know, a quarter of the price. Uh, When you go to a place like Half Price Books, Mm -hmm. you can buy new books, like unused books. And that's typically what they are, these remaindered books. Okay. Um, So, yeah, that's something that bookstores now, that's a routine practice. 
And so this was kind of his innovation here of saying, well, there's all these books that were so popular in Britain that didn't sell. People back in the US want these. These are brand new. You're going to throw these out. Uh, he's got like a book arbitrage going. As readers, uh, that was an interesting tidbit here. Um, and that was the father of the the one who's on the boat who, okay. who had initiated all of that. Um, so Laureate himself would survive, actually. The rare works of literature would not. <laughs> the Thackeray he had actually just left in his cabin as he's scrambling to collect things. I think he just decided that is just going to be a loss. I, I can't carry all the stuff. Good for him, though, because how many people make that mistake? Right. Oh, I need to go back and grab something. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. no, you don't. If this man can leave priceless works of literature behind, you can leave your purse or your jacket right. or whatever else. So yeah, he goes back, he scrambles to get all of his stuff. I believe he's having to do this all just with a match so he can mm-hmm. see what's where. He does grab the Dickens and he keeps that on his person as he's going to the lifeboat. Presumably, maybe he's thinking, well, this one isn't mine, so I'll try and save it. <laughs> when he's getting in that lifeboat, this would be one of the lifeboats that fails to launch. Mm-hmm. And the book was lost along with it. Mm. In 1922, he would actually file a lawsuit against Germany for the loss of the items, <laughs> seeking $51,399.31. That's a lot of money at the time. <laughs> it is, but I'm also thinking that like, if you're Germany in this uh, crushing post-war impositions that people are, are leveling at you, all mm-hmm. of the money you're having to pay, all the stuff you're having to do. It's like, we don't have it. What, what do you mean? Yeah, what like, do what do you want me to do? <laughs> Germany is just standing there with its pockets turned inside out. Basically, <laughs> he would ultimately be awarded $10,000. That's still a lot of money for the time. I don't know how much of that went to the guy who actually owned the Dickens. Yeah, I hope that the guy who owned the Dickens book at least got like compensated for the book. What are the odds? You lend this guy a, a priceless piece of literature history and... The Lusitania happens. <laughs> you got to include that in the terms of the borrowing. Just make, make sure a Lusitania doesn't happen to this right. book. <laughs> uh, so safe in Queenstown after the sinking, Laureate sent his wife a telegram saying, I saved the baby's pictures. They were my mascot. I regret your hours of suspense. <laughs> so he is able to save one priceless object, and that is a photo um, or pictures of his of his child at the time. Not something that's as easily replaceable. I would also have to think, like, if you truly asked him, like, which would you rather have saved? He seems like the kind of guy that's like, I'll, I'll take the baby pictures. Like, I can yeah. get some more rare books. Yeah, exactly. He, he literally buys and sells rare books like every day. Yeah. There will be more of those. Uh, so another couple here um, to talk about is Theodore and Belle Nash. So I want to say thanks to Riley, uh, one of our listeners, for highlighting the Nashes to us. Um, they, they do come up in a lot of the books. They might not have jumped out as, at me as much had, had that not been pointed out to us. But Ted Nash had been born in Birmingham, England in 1856, and later moved to the U.S., ultimately becoming a U.S. citizen in 1891. He and Bell were married in June 1911, and they lived, quote, modestly but comfortably in Kansas City, Missouri. To our international listeners who are less familiar with the U.S., Kansas City is, in fact, in Missouri, not in the adjacent state of Kansas. Although there is a smaller city called Kansas City right next to the big Kansas City that is actually in Kansas. Anyway, their travel on Lusitania was serving as a belated honeymoon, actually. Ted was dealing with seasickness for most of the voyage, so he spent the bulk of his time in their cabin. But he begged Belle to spend time up on deck to enjoy the experience. You know, he's begging her like, you've got to go look at, you know, Ireland is beautiful. You can see it. Go look Mm -hmm. at it. 
Um, Bell was on deck when the torpedo struck and entered their cabin to find Ted already preparing their life jackets. Uh, despite assurances from an officer that the ship would stay afloat for at least an hour, they observed the growing list and knew it wouldn't nearly be that long. <laughs> Theodore and Bell assisted others with life jackets, including a woman struggling to ensure the safety of her two-year-old. So she was apparently trying to wrap her, her child in her coat and then put a big life jacket on both of them. Mm -hmm. And Ted basically stops her and says, if you do that, you're both just going to sink. Hmm. So he says, you're going to be much better off if you just put on a life jacket and hold your kid. Like that's, that's going to be much better for you. That's the old, uh, if the oxygen masks fall down, put it on yourself first trick right there. Yeah, exactly. As the ship sank, Ted and bell became separated. Bell would ultimately survive. Although Ted would not, and his body would not be recovered. Hmm. Um, however, Ted's memory lives on in the form of Camp Theodore Nash, which is a Boy Scout camp west of Kansas City, located on land where the couple's estate had been. And that was kind of the net, the connection that Riley had made in the message that he sent. So that's cool seeing like a lot of these camps and things. You see, you pass these signs and you see these people that they're named mm -hmm. for. And there's always so many, you know, interesting stories behind that. And it's cool. So moving into some of the evacuation um, and rescue stuff here after the torpedo struck Lusitania. Reactions among crew and passengers were obviously mixed. Some passengers immediately, you know, we've seen ran to their cabins, got life belts, personal belongings. Others just waited around. Yeah, we've seen some of that too. Assuming that if something significant had happened to the ship, there would be time to evacuate or someone would be telling us, you know, the crew would tell us what to do for sure. I think too, like, you know, even though the Titanic has happened, there's still that idea that like the safest place to be is on the big ship mm -hmm. because big ships don't really sink that often. That certainly had to influence people's thinking. The idea that we've got two hours, we've got three hours. Like, what's the rush? Why get in a lifeboat if we don't need to? I mean, overall, that's good advice because <laughs> they're dangerous. Here. Right. Yeah. Uh, you definitely don't want to, like, you know, if, if you have another option. So among the people influenced by this uh, was Margaret Mackworth, who, along with her table mate, Dorothy Connor, provides probably the most famous quotation to come out of the Lusitania sinking. Mackworth stated to Connor, I always thought a shipwreck was a well-organized affair. Connor responded, so did I, but I've learned a devil of a lot in the last five minutes. That, that was one of my favorite quotes in reading Dead Wake. Yeah, and we talk about like the, you know, it's being an orderly affair. We talk about Titanic. Sure, there was some chaos involved, but this was spread out over a span of a few hours where people had to you know, make decisions. Further back with the women and children first thing, we talk about the Birkenhead, where this mm -hmm. develops over a long span of time. They have time to make these decisions and choices. Very likely, that's what people are assuming about a shipwreck. If it happens, you've got some time. It can't be overstated how compressed this timeline is from detonation to sinking. Mm -hmm. A lot of people probably don't even have time to process what's going on. So George Kessler is another example of a passenger who wasn't convinced that Lusitania had suffered a fatal injury. He is also one of my favorite passengers. The Champagne King? I wish I was him like in a past life or something. This <laughs> man, I, me and him could be friends. <laughs> uh, this is actually a quote from The Last Voyage of the Lusitania um, by A.A. A. Holing, which I don't quote from as much because it's the, I think it's from the 50s. Mm-hmm. It's quite old and it's it's done in like a narrative type fashion. It's not the most academic book, uh, but there was there's there's some good stuff in there, too. And it says close behind Timmons was George Kessler, the New York wine merchant who had brought two million dollars in securities with him. 
smoking a cigar, he helped to load the boats with women. He told Timmons he was doing so only in a spirit of convention, as he did not believe the Lusitania would sink. This idea of just kind of going through the motions, like, okay, we're going to do this. I Nothing's going to happen, but we're going to do this anyway. I think it's interesting seeing the differences here. He's smoking a cigar almost because it's casual, right? Like, he's like, all right, well, I'll help you do this, but I'm going to enjoy a cigar while I do it. Versus someone like Vanderbilt, who like, it almost seems like, well, these might be my last 20 minutes. I'm going to have a nice cigar while, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's almost like that sort of embracing the death thing of like, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to enjoy these last few minutes. It's, it's just interesting seeing the same thing happen, but different kind of thoughts and mindsets right. going on. So unlike Titanic, Lusitania didn't suffer from a lack of lifeboats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, after Titanic, not having enough of those became a big issue. Shipping industry had gone through a bit of a boat fever uh, after that. Shipping companies didn't always compensate for the added weight of the boats, leading to things like the Eastland disaster, uh, which that was a contributing factor, which is only about two and a half months after Lusitania. Yeah, it's so... Interesting that like all these major nautical disasters, like they're they're all really close to each other. And actually, uh, the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs, mm-hmm. their mo- most recent episode is about the Eastland. Highly recommend checking that out. Rich does a re- really great job with telling. Nice. I stories. have not actually listened to them yet. I need to. I've interacted with them on Twitter some, but mm-hmm. not. I really um, like that. Um, uh, I love the way that the interviews are incorporated into that show. Excellent. It's a great listen. Um, so definitely check that out. At some point, I, we'd like to cover the Eastland. It's it's just kind of a big one for the Great Lakes area. But yeah, that was a, that was a really great episode. Um, so Lusitania's problem here was a combination of the short amount of time given mm-hmm. for evacuation and the severe starboard list that she developed as water rushed into this gaping hole in her side. Uh, so boats on the starboard side were inaccessible because they were swinging out too far. So you had like, you know, a six foot gap between the deck Mm -hmm. and the boat. And a lot of the people aren't going to be able to make that. Otherwise, these boats, kind of like that one we saw, they were still attached to the davits as they're being dragged underwater. So people who are trying to get in those uh, very often got dragged under with them. Mm -hmm. Boats on the port side had the opposite problem, swinging in too far towards the hull. So they can't be deployed because they won't clear the ship. Yeah, it's the same problem we see in so many of these stories. And that's why we always say, like, you don't ever want to have to use the lifeboats. There's very, very rare occasions where they were useful, especially at this point. It's something that, you know, with the lifeboats and people criticize the Titanic for not having enough of them. Like, why would you not have enough for all your people? And it does come down to kind of a critical difference in what lifeboats were for. Mm hmm. They weren't intended as your final salvation. They were kind of intended as what well, you're going to take this to a passing ship that's going to for sure stop and help us. And then mm-hmm. we'll bring it back, get some more people. Right. Overall, Lusitania carried 48 lifeboats on her final voyage. So more than enough for everyone she had. Of those 48, six were successfully deployed. That is not a good ratio. So in addition to the physical challenges, just because of the list. Also, there was a lack of crew expertise with the process of launching the boats. Quoting from Preston again, Oscar Grob watched what was happening on the starboard side. He saw boats handled by crewmen in such a way that they couldn't hold on to the ropes or they slipped through their hands. The boats fell down and one end struck the water first and dropped everybody into the water. He decided he would be far better off jumping over and swimming away. I think that's interesting. I think you're seeing the difference in doing like a random lifeboat drill once a week or whatever and doing it for real. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not that easy. And especially when you read about because they did have lifeboat drills for the crew. Mm-hmm. It was literally getting to your boat, getting in the boat mm-hmm. and getting out. There was no practice with lowering these things. I mean, it's essentially the same as today. Like you see like active shooter drills at work mm-hmm. or at school. Like no one really takes them that seriously. And honestly, if it happens, it's not going to do that much for right. you, whatever training you're getting out of that. And again, the biggest thing with the lifeboat drills is they can't do them while the ship is in motion. Mm-hmm. That's a very good way to kill yourself mm-hmm. is to try to get in one of these lifeboats while the ship is under steam and moving. So obviously they're not going to they're not going to have a good time to stop mid voyage and, and practice these things. So continuing on here, Joseph Myers was also unimpressed with the seaman's effort to launch the boats. Watching them swing out the boats the day before, he had thought that they, quote, looked more like day laborers than seamen. He reflected that the scenes around him were disgraceful. Indeed, the worst discipline I ever saw. I would invite Mr. Myers to launch his own lifeboat. If you I do was it. One of the crewmen. Like, Here you go. Here you go. This is yours. You can have this yeah, one. You do it, sir. <laughs> this isn't just an observation uh, from you know these panic passengers. We've talked about issues where passengers don't typically know the inner workings of the crew and what Mm -hmm. they're supposed to be doing, what this is supposed to look like. So very often you get this criticism when it may not be founded. However, Captain Turner himself testified as much during the inquiry into the sinking. Still with Preston here. At his first appearance in open session, Captain Turner surprised those present by his answer to a question probing whether the Lusitania's crew had been proficient in handling lifeboats. He replied simply, no, they were not. He later explained that they lacked practice and experience. Later still, in response to prompting by Cunard's counsel, he confessed that he was an old-fashioned sailor man who did not believe that present standards matched up to those of his youth. I like that he did the thing that I like to do sometimes, like at work, is like when someone's kind of calling you out for something or saying, hey, someone on, like something on your team is going wrong. The best thing you can do is be like, yeah, it is wrong. You're, you know, you're right. That's an issue. <laughs> I, like People always expect for you to be defensive and nothing throws people off their game more than when you agree <laughs> with them. I think it's funny, though, because like I, I see this sometimes with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher. I expect my students to make a certain amount of progress. And, you know, when students don't make progress, there's certainly a, a school of thinking. And I'm mostly in this field as well of. If a student's failing to make progress, that is largely the teacher's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are there are cases where you just can't make progress. But if something's not working, the teacher is responsible for reassessing. What can we do differently? You know, what what is the hang up here? And let's get around this. I, I think I see that a little bit with Turner, though. If your crew is not good with the lifeboats and they don't know what to do, whose fault is that? Mm-hmm. Like, sure, they didn't come to you with this inborn knowledge of how lifeboats work. And maybe that's someone's job to talk about it a little bit more. Maybe show right. them how to do it. Maybe, I don't know, be present overseeing some of these things. I don't know. I'm sure Turner's a busy guy. But <laughs> I also feel like you can't complain about your employee's performance while being the person who's responsible for it. Right. Uh, so overall... 1,198 lives were lost during the sinking of the Lusitania. That left 764 survivors, uh, several of whom would uh, die of injuries sustained during the sinking. Uh, Of the dead, 128 were Americans. Uh, And while the intentional sinking of a passenger vessel with Americans on board wasn't the immediate catalyst for war in the U.S., it did have some 
effect on public opinion towards Germany. And we will get into that and the larger aftermath of Lusitania in part four. So that's it. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's this segment all done. So any final wrap-up thoughts before we end this here? I don't think so. Uh, just sitting here thinking that this probably could have been five main episodes. It's just amazing <laughs> that uh, the Lusitania just keeps expanding. This was originally supposed to be a three-part series, mm-hmm. and I feel like we've cut so much, and here we are still at an hour and 37 minutes almost yes. in Zencaster. Um, so on that note, we will have one final wrap-up episode, and we hinted at this on Twitter. We will also have an extra part five, I guess, our super secret part five on Lusitania uh, that we'll be doing for Patreon, just because we have so much stuff that we haven't been able to fit in here. Um, There's some wrap up things, some extra things we want to make sure we can talk about a little bit. And we'll do that on Patreon. So yeah, let's, uh, we'll wrap it here. We'll be back next week with uh, the final mainline episode of Lusitania. And uh, if you made it this far, thanks for listening. And uh, have a great week.